As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European if you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. And to make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just two pounds a week. For that, you will get unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. This week on the New European podcast, the heatwave may have stalled and the rains may have come. Britain's political temperature keeps on rising. It's hard to keep a cool head when inflation's in double digits, when 45 million of us are expected to be in fuel poverty this winter, when low pay brings even more inequality, when the infrastructure of our country breaks down before our eyes and when our incoming Prime Minister clearly doesn't have a plan to deal with any of it. So when things come to a head in the first weeks of Liz Truss's premiership, what will happen to Britain? Will we keep calm and carry on as before? Or will we go to the streets in the way that our European neighbours do? Wouldn't it be the final irony of Boris Johnson's rotten rule if we ended up becoming more like France? I'll be discussing all of that with Zoe Williams shortly. And of course, malevolent ministers, bogus backbenchers, putrid pundits will head into our hall of shame. But first, 16 days to go. If you're listening to this podcast on release day, there's only 16 days until another kind of release day. It's the day the country's released from the dismal grip of Boris Johnson, the laziest, most dishonest prime minister in living memory. We will deal with more of his poisonous legacy across the next two podcasts. But first, we asked you, 
dear new European podcast listeners, what leaving gift would you give to Boris Johnson? Thanks for all of these suggestions. SW says the leaving gift he would give to Boris Johnson is my energy bill. Paul Bailey says a John Lewis gift card. Chinny Pie Man says I would give Boris Johnson four to five years. Uh, Adrienne Wilde says a clockwork orange style film screening in which Boris Johnson is forced to watch a collection of all the lies he has told. Many, many people said a one-way ticket to Rwanda would be a good leaving gift for Boris Johnson. Gene Sellers, though, was the only one who said a one-way ticket to a scorpion-infested island. Uh, Phil Walsh says the leaving gift he would go give to Boris Johnson is a free ride on a giant trebuchet. Malcolm McLaughlin says eight rolls of wallpaper from B&M. And Rory Harden says a lifetime membership at the Mar-a-Lago private resorts in Palm Beach, Florida, on the condition that Boris Johnson resides there permanently. Paulie Pekkanen says, obviously, a human-sized fridge. Robin Bexter says something modern, something electric, like a chair. And finally, Hope for Us All says, I would give Boris Johnson exactly the same as he has given the UK nothing. Now, let's bring in Zoe Williams, author of A Storm is Coming, a powerful piece in issue 304 of The New European. It examines a country where keep calm and carry on is being replaced by Don't Pay UK, where no worries if not is turning into enough is enough. Uh, Zoe, it's an excellent piece, and we will come to that in a moment. Before we do, though, I mean, approximately how many thousands of words have you written about Boris Johnson over the years? And will any little bit of you miss writing about him? So the first thing I really, the first time I really engaged with the gentleman was um, when he was just about to be mayor of London, just about to be elected for the first time. And I wrote something which, you know, is exactly the same as what I would write today, which is this man is a scumbag. He's, he's a snob. He's a, he's intellectually facile he's lazy he's elitist in the most in the most kind of nefarious way he's obviously racist homophobic um and and a joke um and i wrote that in the so, so what would that have been 2008 mm. we got loads and loads of complaints from the guardian um, from guardian readers who just thought this was totally unfair and they were really like full-on um you know you're not you're not here to damage somebody's electoral prospects, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was quite surprised because I was thinking, well, if I'm not here to do that, what am I here for? <laughs> but, um, you know, long story short, I don't think anybody would disagree with any of that now. It's just taken 15 years to, to kind of coalesce as normal opinion. Yes, that's right. I think Paul Dacre would probably disagree with it. Um, and uh, it's, it's, the, the Daily Mail is a thing of great wonder at the moment, as you... So, sort of, uh, you know, you go through the, the the mountain of articles every day about how the woke mob have finally got rid of Boris Johnson and not his own MPs who he lied to on uh, numerous occasions. What, what do you think it was about Johnson that really appealed to so many people in Britain and allowed uh, him to pull the wool over so many people's eyes for so long? Well, I think he 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 was always really good at he was never troubled by kind of consistency or yeah. things that he said in the past. So he always had a really slick, easy answer for everything. You know, Labour politicians are often 
um, you know, they wrap themselves in knots trying to square the position that they're holding today with the one they held yesterday. Even if though, even if that position has changed for legitimate reasons, they really they really kind of beat themselves up over it. And he never was troubled by anything like that. And obviously, he's never troubled by kind of conscience or honesty or probity or standards. So it was very easy for him to make the world look like a pretty sunny, fun place, right? I mean, he, it, it, if you if you genuinely don't care, I think he's I think he is a sociopath. So mm. if, if you genuinely don't care, then you can come off as somebody who's on their way to the sunlit uplands. And I wonder what would have happened without COVID, you know, if we hadn't had all these really brutal shocks. I wonder, I wonder what would have happened because he, he's a kind of, he's the kind of prime minister who would, who, who would kind of suit a vacuous time. But I don't know how many vacuous times we're gonna have going forward. No, it's a, it's a serious time and he's a, a, a non-serious man, isn't he? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of talk about him joining the Daily Mail. What what do you think he's, he will do post Downing Street? Well, um, my my husband, who really annoyingly predicts things very well, says yeah. has, has this prediction: a complete decamp to the US, where he does where he makes an absolute packet on the after dinner speaking circuit, and then a return, a kind of a kind of you know, he'd be kind of inculcated into the Trump fringes and then a return to British politics after like a period of time has passed, maybe five years. I would, I really hate that idea. So I refuse to brook it. But if you want the worst possible case scenario, it's that. Well, there will certainly be enough supporters. And he's, there's, a, there's a period of delusion, isn't there, when, um, when, uh, when people leave. You know, I remember. I remember there was lots of talk about Thatcher coming back, wasn't there? There was talk yeah. about Blair coming back, um, and uh, uh, but you know, maybe uh, maybe he, uh, he certainly believes it himself. I think um, we've been getting readers' suggestions, uh, listeners' suggestions as well for, for leaving presents that Boris Johnson. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, what do people say? Do you have any? What would you give him as a leaving present? I would give him a um, what are those machines that people use to take down wallpaper? (laughs) (laughs) A steamer. Get him a wallpaper steamer. A steamer, yes. Somebody did suggest suggest a a wallpaper stripper, but if you said to him, "We're going to get you a a stripper," he would obviously be (laughs) greatly excited. So it, it may it may backfire. Um, let, let's turn to your. I just I do like thinking about the end of Boris Johnson. Um, but let, let's turn to this this great piece that you've written in issue three hundred and four of the New oh, European. Uh, a, a storm is coming is is the headline, um, and it really looks ahead to what we'll be facing when Johnson is gone. But when summer is gone, and then you know fuel price rises, inflation, power cuts, industrial strife all land in the in-tray of the new Prime Minister who is, is going to be Liz Truss, isn't it? I mean, based on what you've seen of Liz Truss over the years and in this election campaign, leadership election campaign, does does Liz Truss fill you with any confidence that she can deal with any of this effectively? I mean, I know that's sort of a joke question, but yes. it's, it's sort of, they're, they're two separate questions, aren't they? Because there's Liz Truss on her own, if she just became prime minister and we weren't we weren't facing multiple crises at once, would still be a complete disaster. You know, she's people talk about her qualities of stubbornness and eccentricity as though these are kind of fun, 
nice traits in a human being. But you don't want an eccentric thinker who can't be persuaded by reason running your country. You just that's 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 really bad. That's a really bad mix of and she's shown no all she can do is pick fights. She's shown absolutely no capacity for the, the, the kind of detailed, intelligent thought that, that government needs. So I mean, I'd be worried about her in any in, in any sense. And 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 I am worried, and I'm 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 fundamentally worried that they don't have an answer to any of these crises. And their answer when they don't have an answer is just to pick a new war against somebody, whether that's cyclists or trans people or migrants or you know they just they just pick a new fight to deflect from the fact that they don't have a, a, a clue in their heads about what to do but you know i'm I, i'm kind of fun i'm really properly worried that she's going to go to war on net zero maybe or start some new horrible scheme akin to rwanda um it, it, but but that's sort of almost her pantomimes of cruelty and division are a sideshow to what the country's going to look like, because it's really, really serious. Yes, it is really serious. And, and uh, I mean, in a, in a desperate time, I think a heartening thing is, is the reaction to, to what she and Sunak have been, this pantomime of, you know, let's, we'll, we'll go to war on cyclists and trans people and all the, all the things that you've mentioned, because I think people are, People are genuinely bemused and they say, no, what I I care about is the ongoing cost of living crisis and the ongoing fuel uh, price crisis and the ongoing crisis of inflation. Not any of this guff that you're uh, that you're trotting out for the the faithful. So how how do you think how do you think Britain is going to respond to to all of this as as it gathers? Since I wrote that piece, right, two things have happened. Um, one just just to me, not to the world. <laughs> or two things I've noticed. I've thought to thought two more things. One is the launch of Enough Is Enough, which I think had actually already happened by then. That yes. they had their proper rally um, last night in Clapham Junction, and it it's it has got a real sense of the cor- the early Corbyn days. You know, when twenty thousand people were were singing his name in Glastonbury, it had a real kind of palpable enthusiasm and refusal to back down, which I haven't seen on the British left for five years, I wouldn't say, um, or even more than that. And the, and the, the second is I, I um, interviewed Mick Lynch from the RMT and he was, you know, it, 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 there is this huge political territory which the Labour Party currently aren't occupying of saying really simple, obvious things that everybody will understand, you know, end low pay, end the housing crisis, bring work in house so people haven't got terrible shitty conditions, treat people better, freeze fuel prices, sequester British gas if you have to, I mean, Mm. sequester the North Sea gas if you have to, you know, massive things that can make people's lives better that are politically possible, which no politician is saying. And I think, there's every chance that that coheres into like a, a, a quite a significant movement. What that then looks like, whether that's a kind of general strike or rolling demonstrations or all of those things or mass non-bill payments, I don't know. But I don't think it's, I don't think people are just going to, nobody's going to just lie down to the fact that they can't afford to keep their dog or they can't afford 
to make sure their children are warm enough. Nobody's going to lie down to that. Yes, I mean, you know, it's 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 staggering, isn't it? You read, we're recording this on a Thursday, and people are talking about forty-five million people being in, in some kind of fuel poverty, and these really are sort of unprecedented times. In this piece, you just you, you talk about the sort of protests that you and I and people listening to this will have gone on in the past: CND marches, People's Vote marches, Iraq marches, and you describe them as the complete history of people who furiously objected to things that happened anyway. Um, it's really been the sort of the things that have come from the country, or, or, or I mean, maybe things that we associate with more right-wing people where direct action has, has worked, hasn't it? The countryside and hauliers, farmers. Why, why is that, do you think? Well, I think it's partly because um, people who march for right-wing reasons are more likely to have access to heavy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's all, you know, if you think about farmers and hauliers, and they're, and they're always, I mean, they're not necessarily marching for right-wing reasons always, but they're often marching for material for germane material reasons right so like lower petrol prices or or some other you know some other farming related thing and then and I think people who've got a tractor people who can put their hands on a HGV are more likely to be heeded in the public sphere but they're also more likely to be asking for something which can be met you know it's like a demand for a cut in VAT on petrol that that you can meet if you have to, whereas if somebody's saying and somebody's saying climate justice now, it's quite easy. It makes it a bit easier to ignore that person. But there's also, I mean, there's a really interesting kind of um, trend, I think, because we do we we often do think of ourselves as having been kind of useless in in protest terms. And you know, the Iraq War was the kind of pinnacle of that. You get a million people on the streets. And it didn't make one jot of difference. And everybody on that march knew that it wasn't going to make any difference. But there are, you know, longer term impacts of changing the weather are no, are visible in, in demonstration, in kind of history of demonstrations. So if you look at CND, we were always like, well, they didn't close Greenham down, did they? Even though a load of hippies lived there. Um, but actually, European um, nuclear disarmament was effective, and there was massive de-escalation between Khrushchev and Reagan. Um, because, and Reagan, one of the advisors, sorry, this is really niche, but I do find it interesting. One of Reagan's advisors told one of the um, founders of END that they'd taken their negotiating um, uh, demands from the, peace, the peaceniks banners because they thought they were so extreme that the Russians were bound to say no. And then the Russians said yes. <laughs> so, you know, these things do work. Um, but I don't think we're looking at that right for this autumn. We're not, we're not looking at people demonstrating for kind of global stroke long-term ends. We're looking at people saying enough is enough, basically. This just, I'm just not prepared to live like this anymore. Yes. And what about the what about the, the sort of the don't pay movement and and the idea of bill strikes? Because you could say that they hasten the end of of Mrs Thatcher, but you could also say that you know in the the first of all it, before the poll tax it was rates, wasn't it? And a lot of people suffered, and a lot of people went to jail. Was is that something that worked, or, or 
what, it really what depends how many people do it. I mean, I remember when I was when I a friend of mine did spend a day in jail over the poll tax refusing refusal, and then his dad bailed him out. So he's like, "This is just ridiculous." Yeah. <laughs> um, but the there, there will always be some people at the vanguard who get who get thrown under the bus. So you know, if there's any kind of long, large scale bill strike movement. Ultimately, you can't arrest everybody, but you can arrest a few people, and there will be victims of that. There was an interesting Martin Lewis thread about electricity bills, um, which said, you know, we really, really, really don't choose that as your bill strike because they can put you on a prepayment meter and then you're stuck. Mm. Um, so, so you know, that's that that is their first and last resort is just to change the method of delivery so that you can't have any in advance, and then. And and then everything will be more expensive, and you'll be in arrears. And they and he had and it's worth looking that up if you were in, intending to not pay that because there are things you can do, but just not that. Nevertheless, you know there's going to be there are other things. If you had a, if you had a mass non-payment of rent, they can't evict everybody. If you mm. had a mass non-payment of council tax, what a local authority is going to do? There will be people will be making adjudications about what they can and can't pay back. And what they can and can't pay, um, and I don't think I said I. I think it's got to the stage where respectable opinion isn't on the side of the creditor. Yes, you've just you've reminded me actually that I, I, I knew somebody who uh, who was about my age and was uh, similarly had a similar story to, to your friend, and I think he spent two nights in in jail before being rescued with his dad, who then referred to him. Uh, for the, the next few years, it's young Papillon, uh, which I always <laughs> enjoy. Um, what what part are young people going to going to play in this? And, and are young people more radicalised than, than they used to be? I mean, the, the things that they engage with the most, it seems to me, are, are not you know they're, they're political, but not party political. Well, I think they're pretty sick of. I mean, they they did engage a lot with Corbyn's Labour. They're really, yes. really sick of, of a, kind, a kind of technocratic centrist Labour and they have no time for that at all. Um, I think they, I think, I mean, if you look at the kind of material conditions of, of being anybody under 35 in this country now, God. they've, and especially towards the younger end of the scale, they, their student debt is crippling. And mm -hmm. it's, and it's really, there are kind of suggestions that the way that debt is levied is actually illegal because they can just change the interest rate whenever they want to there was no kind of there was no hard there were no hard edges in the clause they're paying back to the tune of four or five hundred pounds a month and seeing no reduction in their debt by the end of the year i mean they're really they've got this huge debt burden their wages are stagnant rents are insane um so there's even even the ones who are who would, all the young people who in our day would have been kind of on the side of, of authority and the establishment because you know they were doctors or accountants or they had a stake are now struggling just to keep afloat even though they're in these kind of air quotes respectable professions. So I think if you've got a whole generation that is struggling with it to meet its needs to meet its basic survival needs irrespective of its class and social advantage and education, then, you, then you're looking at quite a radical generation. But they would say, we haven't radicalised, you've radicalised, you know, you brackets the government. When you only govern in the interests of one generation, which is what this government does, 
they govern in the interest of pensioners and not even all pensioners, then you then, then that's the radical act. Objecting to that isn't radical. It's, a, it's just an incredible thing that people are paying, you know, four figures monthly to rent in London and then no. told that their, their, their energy bills are going to go up from 400 to uh, £4,000. Uh, just quite staggering. Um, you end this piece with the thought of direct action and there's, you know, there are two great quotes at the end. One is an adage, the other is is something that the French boyfriend of an American woman said to her during the, the end of the Trump administration. Just uh, just, uh, just talk to us about, about those and what you think that means. So so the, this is why Twitter is will always be worth it, whatever happens, is that you read funny things. But so this this woman, this American woman had a French boyfriend and, and in like, it was probably 2019, and he said, things are so bad here and yet nobody sets fire to anything. How do you expect things to change if nothing is on fire? Um, and that is a kind of, there's a kind of Anglo-American sense that when you start breaking things, that's when you failed, which I think is mm. completely flipped in Europe. When you start breaking things, that's when you start to succeed. And, and, and I, you know, I think that, I, I, I think if you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, um, what what they did that made so much difference was not just you know glue themselves to things and spark a debate about whether people should be allowed to glue themselves to things they also they 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 sort of brought a kind of hope and generative energy to every single person who was involved in it mm. which they then took on which then made a difference to the movement as a whole and i think that's and i think that's what direct action can do. You know, when you stop doing the, when you, when you stop abiding, when you stop playing by the rules, suddenly your canvas is a lot wider. Uh, but then I don't, I, but you know, it really depends what, I mean, what does direct action mean to you? So, so on one side, there, there are, there is, I mean, the, your piece is illustrated uh, in, in print uh, at any rate with, with a picture of, rioting in Trafalgar Square, um, which, you know, which did precipitate the end of uh, poll tax and the end of Mrs Thatcher, but it's, it's, a stre- it's a stretch to say it directly caused it. But then, you know, the direct action that's, that's as, as effective as, as Extinction Rebellion for me is, you know, I mean, we've, the last three, three or four years we've watched people taking a knee in sporting events that are watched by hundreds of millions of people uh, all over and then of course the the, the statue in Bristol which is a stunning uh, you know a stunning uh, moment which, which sort of brought this idea to you know you heard people discussing the idea of, of statues of slavery who would I don't think it had ever occurred to people some some people who, who I've had conversations uh with that about uh, mm. at the time so I mean those are incredible to me examples of, of direct action yeah it's, it's really complicated because because basically there's some, something's broken about the contract right there is the, the, the contract yeah. between a government and its people is is not is not is no longer functional if people are struggling to survive. 
So if you if you stick by the kind of old rules, especially now we've got the crime and policing bill coming in and, and, and coming into law, I think I think it's I think it's unopposable now. Um, you know, the protest the, the kind of limits, the scope of legal protest is, is narrowing all the time. And even if it weren't, staying within the lines of legality doesn't fails to express how kind of how serious and grave the situation is. But then at the same time, somebody, again, somebody always, I remember the riots of 2011, I was covering the court cases and there were, and, and the law came down incredibly harshly on people. I saw a guy get sent to prison for six months for having an Oyster card that wasn't in his name. And another guy who had visible tumors on his face from late stage cancer, who got a prison sentence for stealing a crate of still water, right? So. So, you know, where, where these kind of, where these actions tip into law breaking, there are real victims and, you, and, I, and, it, and I wouldn't feel right about kind of sitting here cheerleading it while, while, while not having to pay the price that I know some people will have to pay. Nevertheless, I know what I condemn it. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting moment, isn't it? Um, as a para, as a paranoid man, do you think there's there's a risk that all of this, that an autumn of discontent, it, it sort of defines and strengthens Liz Truss? That there's a bit of Thatcher cosplaying in there, and suddenly it's, we're talking about the enemy within and all of that nonsense. Which, of course, Liz, the people who vote for Liz for the Conservatives and voting for Liz Truss will absolutely love. I mean, I think that two things on that. The um, Hannah Arendt always used to say that authoritarian regimes seek these moments they seek yes. these math points because both for practical reasons that they allow them to crack down on the elements of society which are most threatening to them and for atmospheric stroke optical reasons that you kind of you revivify your own base by having an enemy especially if the enemy is is kind of very expressive and i can see that and i and it does worry me but at the same time, this isn't this isn't going to be symbolic. This is going to be this this is going to mean something. You know, it's going to it it it's if you get a mass general strike, if you get mass walkouts, if you get mass bill strikes, um, that that's not something that she can saber rattle about. That's something she's going to have to deal with. And I think probably if the, if the opposition could actually crystallize some of the energy coming to its left and um, yeah. coming from its left into a set of demands I think she will end up caving on a lot of things you know I wouldn't be at all surprised if she ends up freezing bill freezing electricity bills energy bills rather at their current level because because you know you might you might get some golf club bore siding with Liz Truss over a trades unionist but there's nobody in the country who would prefer to pay for Eight thousand pounds a year to one thousand one hundred. Yes, yes. I mean, I think I think that's absolutely right, and she is going to she is going to be dragged into it. But yeah. uh, but we will see. Listen, thank you so much, Zoe Williams, to read "A Storm Is Coming" by Zoe and all her other fine pieces for the New European. Uh, you can join us by subscribing at the neweuropeancouk slash TNE podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's really nice chatting to you. 
Zoe Williams there. And now it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits and things that get my goat generally. Uh, Pretty Patel is in the Hall of Shame. This week we learn that opposite Pretty Patel's desk, there's a whiteboard with her top priorities written on it. And at the top it says, one, stop small boat crossings. Well, that whiteboard thing's definitely worked out for her, hasn't it? They've all stopped. What's number two? Stop doing that weird smirking thing or successfully send even more migrants to Rwanda. Uh, Rishi Sunak is in the Hall of Shame. And for the reason uh, why, I'm indebted to Jerry Scott, formerly of this parish. She's now at The Times and she wrote on Twitter uh, on Thursday, Rishi Sunak tells this morning that if he goes to McDonald's with his daughters, they all get the breakfast wrap. As a breakfast wrap aficionado, I can confirm they were taken off the menu in March 2020. And in January 2022, it was confirmed that breakfast wrap would never return. Wow, that's amazing, Jerry. Just imagine that Rishi Sunak saying something that wasn't true. Uh, Staying with Rishi Sunak and Widdicombe uh, returns to the Hall of Shame. Uh, And in her terrible column for the awful Daily Express, she is defending swimming pool owners. Like Rishi Sunak, she writes, the politics of Henry is corrosive. Rishi Sunak can afford a swimming pool because he was a successful merchant banker. I also have one because I spent 10 weeks hoofing around a studio with Anton Dubeck. As no one has ever sniffed self-righteously at my pool, I can assume only that the public hates merchant bankers but loves comedic dancers. Uh, alternatively and it could be that people care about Rishi Sunak's swimming pool because he's running for prime minister or pretending to be a man of the people which he isn't well people don't care about your swimming pool because you are a complete irrelevance and talking of irrelevances Nigel Farage is in the hall of shame it's nearly six years ago that Nigel Farage was photographed in a gold lift in a penthouse in Manhattan with the president-elect of the United States of America and this week Nigel Farage has interviewed Right Said Fred and Jody Marsh uh, on his GB News show. It could not happen to a nicer guy. Uh, and finally, this week, Brandon Lewis is in the Hall of Shame. And Brandon Lewis is in there for pretending that Boris Johnson is still working as Boris Johnson takes a second holiday uh, and then uh, puts his feet up at Chequers during the final days of his premiership. But for now, Boris Johnson is out of the country. I think he's in Slovenia. Uh, And uh, Brandon Lewis said, I can assure you being out of the country does not mean the PM stops working. Brandon, mate, he stopped working when he was in the country. This is one occasion when uh, even I have to agree with Jacob Rees-Mogg, who said recently, we need to see people get back into the office people who don't are taking the country for a ride. I could not have put it better myself, uh, but there's only 16 days to go. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Zoe Williams. Thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers only. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for £1 a week for digital, £2 a week for print and digital. It is the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast to get that special rate. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast, you can subscribe, uh, give us lovely ratings, nice reviews. That would be ace. Uh, You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at the New European 
Or if you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. <laughs>